0: As we study the Bible, we see that he has asked us to long to hear it like newborn newborn babies would crave the mother's milk and we are to hide it in our hearts and meditate on it day and night. We are told to rightly divide it. We are told to make it our number one priority in the Christian life to sit under its teaching, to be quick to hear it, to humble ourselves before it, to never stand in judgment of it. But friends, we're also reminded in the word of God that just before Christ returns, there will be a massive falling away, a turning away from the truth, and people will become captivated by myths. People will clamor for false teachers who will tell them what they want to hear and deceive them with clever deceptions. And I would submit to you that we are living in that age of apostasy. And we know, according to the Bible, that that age is going to increase in momentum, that more and more religious people will turn from the truth of the word of God and they will end up hating it and mocking it. And also many people in churches will be spiritually malnourished and starve for a lack of truth. And I've had many of you describe that exact scenario in your lives That you had gone to church for many years, but until you were really exposed to Bible teaching and expository preaching, you didn't realize that in many ways you had been cheated. And you had been deceived. You really had no point of reference. But dear friends, today, our country, as you know, is in utter turmoil. We are in a moral freefall. And frankly, anything that smacks of biblical Christianity is scorned, it is hated, it is ridiculed. We see a mass rebellion against the law of God and even common decency now is out. We see a proliferation of things such as homosexual marriages. We see pornography in our sporting events. We see television, radio, lyrics and songs and so on, too vulgar to To even repeat, the media and even politics has taken on what you might call a fashionable paganism. And our so-called so-called Christian country, I believe, is now frolicking in the raw sewage of human depravity. And for fear of being offensive, we find that. Precious few churches will take this Lord's Day morning and open up this precious book and carefully examine its contents and accurately and authoritatively divide it so that the Holy Spirit can speak to the hearts of the people. And beloved, I guess what I want to say to you before we look at the text this morning is let's don't take this for granted. This 50 minutes or so that we have to immerse ourselves in the glorious truths of scripture, because I believe with all my heart that a day is rapidly approaching when this great freedom will be taken from us, when truth will be sacrificed on the altar of tolerance. And quite frankly, I believe it will be in my lifetime, should the Lord tarry. And I would want to humbly say to you that. Every week when I'm in the vault of my study, I find myself being overwhelmed with a sense of divine urgency, knowing that the powers of wickedness are on the march. And should the Lord tarry, I believe that the persecution will mount as it already has. And it will mount because history has told us that that will happen. The Bible tells us that that will happen. Certainly any civilization that you look at, down through recorded history, whenever they reach the stage of moral insanity and depravity that is now mainstream in America, you see that that civilization quickly deteriorates. And I believe now that we are experiencing the wrath of divine abandonment in the United States of America. We have been given over to the consequences of our iniquity. The United States is in a moral freefall and even contemporary evangelicalism is in a free for all of apostasy. And I guess I just want to say, beloved, let's don't take for granted the privilege that we have today to open up the word of God once again and to look and to see what God has for us. And so I trust that each of you in this sacred place will will take this precious book right now and you will tenderly open it up and prepare your heart for the truth of divine revelation to be imparted to you. Today, we want to celebrate the grace of Christ as we continue to follow along with the Lord Jesus in this historical narrative that we find before us, before us in the gospel of Matthew. Thus far, you will know that uh, we have seen our Lord's messianic claims validated by His fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, we've seen it validated by the way he has manifested his power and his authority over disease, over nature, over Satan, over sin. And today we're going to see that he will manifest his power and validate his claims by overcoming death itself. Beloved, this is a cause for great celebration, a celebration of divine grace. I'm reminded by the way of. First Peter 510, where we're told that God is the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And Paul tells us in Titus 211 that the grace of God has appeared, referring to Jesus. And we're told in Ephesians 2, 5, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, that he made us alive together with Christ by grace, we have been saved. We know that salvation is a work of grace from start to finish. And according according to Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 12, we see that God's work in in all of us will be completed by his grace. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, Paul says, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then again, we are reminded in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. That God is able to make all grace abound. I love that phrase. All grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Well, we have just witnessed in weeks gone past his grace at work in the life of Matthew. You will recall, and I want you to get the big picture here once again, that the father drew him to himself And Matthew repented of his sins. He left his wickedness. He left his career. He left all of his wealth behind to follow Jesus. He saw the greater value of following Christ. And of course, that was a call for the celebration of grace in his life. And so he invites all of his friends in to meet with Jesus and to celebrate with Jesus. But when that happened, it's interesting to see what occurred. And I want you to see how this begins to flow even into the text today, wherever grace is celebrated, wherever God is really at work. It's fascinating to see that somehow from within the ranks of religion itself will arise some legalistic, self-appointed naysayers with the gift of criticism that will come along and they delight in finding fault with everyone or finding fault with something. And it seems as though it's their calling in life to somehow turn joy into sorrow. Like yellow jackets that spoil a picnic, they come buzzing around, pursuing their selfish agenda, making everybody miserable, even in the midst of great celebration. And suddenly all that is good and all that is sacred and worthy of praise is forgotten. Now, the preoccupation of everyone is swatting the bees and people are screaming. You know what it's like. They're running around in a panic, trying to avoid the sting. Well, this was exactly what happened. Remember, with Matthew, he follows the Lord. He has a great celebration. And here comes the bees, the Pharisees and the scribes, the killjoys, the religious hypocrites, lacking compassion. They had no desire to serve. They had no desire to minister to those who they considered beneath them, like the prostitutes and all of the, the, the murderers and the, the, um, the tax collectors that were there in that particular celebration that Matthew was having. They had no desire to restore people, to reconcile, to help reconcile sinners to a holy God. All they knew to do was to ridicule and condemn Well, this morning, we're going to see three more examples of divine grace that's worthy of our celebration as we immerse ourselves in the amazing historical accounts of Jesus' ministry. And I've broken down this text into three basic categories. We're going to celebrate grace because we're going to see that Jesus fulfilled the law, number one. And we're going to secondly see that Jesus saves sinners, number two. And thirdly, we will see that Jesus conquered death. So let's look first of all at verses 14 through 17 and see how Jesus fulfilled the law. In verse 14 of Matthew 9 we read, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. Now, this is a passage that many people have read, and they very quickly say, well, I don't have a clue what that's talking about, so let's move on. Well, that's not what we need to do. We need to immerse ourselves in it and understand it completely. There's some wonderful truths here that will help us celebrate the grace of Christ as we see how Jesus has fulfilled the law. Let me explain to you what's going on. Here we find Jesus encountering some of the disciples of John the Baptist, who, by the way, is now in prison. And they are still clinging to many of the old Jewish traditions. Now, Orthodox Judaism of Jesus' day required, for example, among many things, fasting twice a week combined with, with almsgiving and the recitation of, uh, of certain prescribed prayers. All of this was just mere tradition. By the way, you might remember that Jesus condemned the Pharisees in Matthew 6 for strutting around like proud peacocks showing off their spiritual plumage, if you will, and their godliness, because remember, they would give alms to to the poor. And when they would do it, Jesus would say, you blow trumpets so everybody would see what you're doing. And he condemned them for praying in the most public places and then for fasting by putting on a a gloomy face. And uh, the, the Pharisees had a way of of uh, rolling out the red carpet. It's like it's always you know, they're always going to the Oscars, so to speak. They want everybody to see them like our movie stars tend to do. Now, lest we be too quick to condemn the Pharisees alone, remember that we all have to guard our hearts against ritualism and and um, somehow giving an an Academy Award winning performance to show off our spiritual prowess, don't we? We all want to be careful with that. Any religious activity can be just mere pretense without a heartfelt compassion, or I should say passion, to, to really honor the Lord and glorify Him. Well, in this particular case, John's disciples were not insincere necessarily like the Pharisees. They were just ignorant of the gospel. They didn't fully understand it, and they were caught up in their religion. And so they come to Jesus and, and to, uh, to the disciples there. Um, and and they say, why do we in the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Now, by the way, keep in mind, Jesus has been dealing with with the Pharisees who are condemning him. And now these guys are interrupted by John's disciples. All right. So you got all of this going on and we're going to see some more interruptions in a moment. But they're saying, now, wh- wh- why don't you do the same thing that we do? And we're going to see now that. The Lord's answer cuts right to the very core of their misunderstanding. You see, friends, they did not have an accurate perception of who Jesus was. They did not understand how his grace had fulfilled the law. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand how that because of grace, all of their rituals were obsolete. In fact, they were really hostile to the concept of grace. Their their fastings. And all of the rituals had absolutely no no correlation to truth. They didn't understand this. We've got people in our culture today that still do many of these types of things. More importantly, since they did not know who Jesus was, I don't believe they had saving faith. They were merely John's disciples, not Jesus's disciples. They obviously ignored John the Baptist's earlier exhortation that we read in john three twenty eight and, and verse thirty. Where John says, you yourselves bear witness or bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And then he went on to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. Well, these these people obviously didn't get it. They didn't understand that. By the way, Paul ran into some of John the Baptist's disciples as well in Ephesus in Acts 19. And there you will read that they knew nothing even of the Holy Spirit. All all they knew about was John's baptism. So Jesus is saying to them in verse 15 with this verse about the bridegroom. He's saying, why are you fasting and mourning for this Messiah to appear with all of these rituals, all of these traditions, when in fact your Messiah is standing right before you? This should be a time of celebration. Saving grace is available to you right here through me. Place your faith in me, not the old covenant, not the old traditions that you've added to that. That's why he says the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? Now, folks, you've got to understand something in that culture. The bridegroom was the center of attraction, not the bride. See, we've got it all backwards here today, right, guys? Uh, I've been at so many weddings. It's, it's funny. The groom seems to always have to get dressed back in the janitor's closet, you know. And, and then he finally, he finally comes out and quietly stands there with the groomsmen. And the music is still soft. And people kind of look, oh, yeah, there. Oh, he looks nice today. I wonder if he's going to cry. But, um, but then when the bride comes in. Wow, the music gets loud and the trumpets are blowing and everybody stands up and you have the wedding march and all this great fanfare. And I'm not saying we need to alter that, but I want you to understand that's not the way it used to be. It's all backwards. And so, what the Lord is saying is simply this You should respond to me as your Messiah, as the bridegroom, like you would in a wedding. But he goes on to say, But the days will come, at the end of verse 15. When the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. By the way, taken away that particular verb in the Greek is is one that that indicates a a sudden violent removal. And this is a reference, of course, to the crucifixion. There will be a time for mourning that is coming is what he's telling them. And certainly we continue to mourn. We we long for our Messiah to, to return, for righteousness to reign upon the earth, for sin and for Satan and disease and death to, to be vanquished once and for all. That's why Paul said in Romans 8 and verse 23 that even we as Christians groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our body. So Jesus exhorted them with divine truth. And basically what he's saying is stop mixing the old rabbinical traditions that have no connection with the gospel of truth, with my message. Stop doing that. And he gives another illustration in verse 16, this whole section on patching an old um, garment with um, or putting a patch on, on of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Let me explain this to you. This would refer to what they would avoid doing in that day. You would never patch an old woolen or linen garment. And that's what they would wore, would wear. You would never do that by using an unshrunk cloth, because if you if you were to do that, they both would shrink once again when you washed the garment and then it would result in an even bigger tear. That's the concept. And so, likewise, what he's saying here is that the covenant of grace, in other words, the gospel of forgiveness in Christ by grace alone through faith alone, cannot be sewn into the garment of traditional Judaism. You can't. It doesn't match. It'll make a bigger hole. All of its ceremonies and all of your ceremonies and rituals and and traditions designed to somehow atone for sin and, and appease God's justice. And, and as you go on through the New Testament, you, you see that Christ taught that he was the propitiator. In other words, the divine appeaser that placated the just wrath of a holy God. You see, righteousness can only come through the imputed righteousness of Christ, not of works. It's not a matter of, of internal repentance. I'm, I mean, I, it is a matter of internal repentance. It's not a matter of of external ritual is the idea. And so the gospel of grace, the Lord is saying, is a new patch that could never be attached or sewn onto this worn out garment of the external, self-righteous, hypocritical, legalistic system of apostate Judaism. So he's saying, leave it, renounce it. The old cannot be connected with the new. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because... Often people really get confused with this. Please understand, dear friends, that replacing the old with the new does not refer to abandoning God's law in the Old Testament and somehow supplanting it with grace in its place. Let me explain explain what I'm saying. Law and grace must always they have always and they must always coexist in perfect harmony. Now. If you look at the three divisions of the law in the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, you will see that you had the moral law, you had the judicial law, and you had the ceremonial law. Now, the, certainly the judicial law is out and the ceremonial law is out because the judicial law just simply regulated how a theocracy was to be run. And now in the church age, we don't have a theocracy. And likewise, the ceremonial law is out because that regulated Israel's worship. But the moral law, God's moral law must remain. Remember, in Matthew five, and I preached, I think, three or four sermons on Jesus, the incarnation of the law, to make sure you remember this. In Matthew five, 17 through 19, we see that Jesus emphatically declared that he did not come to destroy the law, but to what? To fulfill it. And he went on to say that anyone who opposes the law opposes God. You see, indeed, Jesus satisfied the justice of God for our violation of his law. But this is radically different than saying, as many do, that he abolished the law. You know, forget about the law. And so Jesus' rebuke here was not centered upon their commitment to obeying the law, but on their commitment to obeying the rabbinic traditions that had obscured and even contradicted the Old Testament With all of its ridiculous traditions, you see, God gave us his law to expose our sin and the law was the codification of the holiness of God. It it was and it remains the holy divine standard of righteousness that is raised up against a sinful man to remind us of our sin and drive us to the savior. That's why Paul said in Romans five and verse 20, and the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more that as sin reigneth, reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, a celebration of grace, beloved. We should celebrate the reality of grace every day, because we are no longer under the condemnation of the law. Grace obliterates the bondage of legalism that the Jews would would try to impose upon the people. But now, with the new covenant, as Paul says in Second Corinthians three, we see that we have a changed heart because of grace. Even though we have violated the law, in fact, in Second Corinthians three, Paul gives a number of ways to describe the old covenant versus the new. And there he just says that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The old was written on tablets of stone, but the new is written on our heart. The old, he says, kills, but the new gives life. The old was a ministry of death, but the new a ministry of the spirit. The old came with glory and you remember that on Mount Sinai, but the new abounds with even more glory, Paul says the old was a ministry of condemnation, but the new a ministry of righteousness in the old. We read that the glory faded, but with the new the glory is permanent. In the old one had to put a veil over the face, but with the new the veil is removed and the vision is clear. In the old, there was bondage, but we read that with the new, there is liberty. And with the old, you could not change your heart, but with the new, the tr- it transforms us from one level of glory to the next, shaping us into the very image of Christ Jesus. So, bottom line, the Lord is saying, don't jettison God's moral law here with grace, but He is telling them, give up all of those old traditions. Now, Jesus gives another illustration to help them understand their error. He says in verse 17, nor do men put new wine into old wineskins. He really wants them to get this. And this is one of the things I see. Let me explain to you what he's saying. Wine in those days was stored in a leather pouch. Usually they would take a goat and they would cut the leg up through the neck and they would um, they would reverse the hide and they would stitch it together and they would pour wine in it and and. Use the neck as the spout, but with age over time, that particular wine skin would become dry and brittle. And so if you were to put new wine into an old wine skin, of course, the new wine is going to continue to, to ferment and it would eventually cause pressure and it would burst the old wine skin and cause all of the wine to spill out. And so new wine required the elasticity of new wine skin. So here was Jesus' point. He was saying to them, the only heart that can obtain the new wine of my grace and that can contain the new wine of saving grace is one that has to be made new by the transforming power of God when one repents and trusts Jesus as Savior. That's what he was saying to them. So get rid of all of the old traditions. Don't try to put the old in the new. It won't work. Well, not only do we celebrate grace as we are reminded of Jesus fulfilling the law, but friends, secondly, we observe him saving sinners. Notice in verses 18 and 19, he says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, there came a synagogue official and bowed down before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and began to follow him. And so did his disciples. Friends, keep in mind, here we have yet another interruption. And here we have the first of the last set of three miracles. Actually, it's a double set of miracles here. We're going to see that he's going to raise this young girl from the dead and restore a woman to wholeness who was considered by their society as dead. And here I want you to understand that we find a great crescendo of messianic glory occurring here because we're going to see that he. Has not only demonstrated his power and authority over disease and sin and Satan and natural forces and, 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 and um, even the supernatural forces of Satan, but now he's going to demonstrate his power over death itself. And here we're going to find some incredible samples of his future kingdom. After his second coming, and I want you to keep this in mind, folks, when Jesus gives us these wonderful historical narratives of his miraculous work, he's not just trying to fill up pages in a book. He's trying to teach us about who he is and also give us a glimpse of future glory. In fact, if you look. At the concept of redemptive history in the Bible, you will see that it's always twofold primarily. And that is God must redeem the people. And secondly, he must restore the kingdom. Or you could put it this way. He's got to redeem the people and redeem the planet. And here we see a foretaste of future blessing, a preview of coming attractions, as I like to put it. Now, let me give you the context, because once again, it's so important that you grasp this. While Jesus is dealing with the hostile Pharisees, he's interrupted by the confused disciples of John. And then all of a sudden, he's interrupted by somebody else. He's interrupted by what the Greek would call an archon. Well, what's that? Well, that's the chief synagogue official. Now, folks, this is really interesting. This was the highest ranking Jewish official in Capernaum. I mean, this guy was in charge of the overall operation of the synagogue, those Pharisees and scribes that were confronting Jesus were basically under this man. I mean, this was the grand poopah. if you want to put it in our Tennessee vernacular? I mean, imagine the scene here. This guy is going to risk his reputation. He's going to expose himself to the scorn of his religious colleagues, and he's going to interrupt this conversation By doing what? It says that he comes up and he bows down. Proskenuo in Greek. It means to literally prostrate oneself before a person and kiss their feet or kiss the hem of their garment or even kiss the ground that's in front of them in an act of utter humility and reverential honor. And it's typically translated with the word worship. Fascinating. By the way, Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel tell us that this man's name was Jairus. Now, obviously, Jairus knew of Jesus' claims of deity, of his mercy, of his compassion, his grace. But he was also in agony of soul because he had a 12-year-old daughter that had just died. You know, it's inevitable when such unbearable grief comes our way that we suddenly get real serious about who God is, right? And it's fascinating. You look at your life and other people's lives, you'll see that very often great tragedies drive people to Christ. There's a number of you in this room that know exactly what I'm talking about. But, you know, I'm also struck with this man's great faith because you realize that in the Gospels, we uh, the gospel account, we see that Jesus had not yet raised anybody from the dead. And yet this man was convinced that he could. And I'm also struck with the tender availability and approachability of Jesus. That somehow, even in the midst of all of the clamor of the people around him. He was available to this man in great distress. I'm reminded of Hebrews four, where we're told that we have a great high priest that can sympathize With our needs, literally the idea of feeling our pain. And therefore, verse 16 of Hebrews four says that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of what to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. So he says, verse 18, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And notice the Lord's reaction in verse 19 it says, And Jesus rose and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. Now, folks, let that sink in. Here, the God of the universe is summoned by one of his sinful creatures. And yet, because of his great mercy and his compassion, he stops what he's doing and he follows to help. I'm always amazed at the Lord's tender mercy. And also imagine the stunned Pharisees and the scribes. By the way, you 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 don't have to look too far to see Even the humor that I believe God brings in to the narratives. These pompous pagan hypocrites suddenly see their superior coming to this man that they're condemning, this man that they hate, and he bows down and worships him. And not only that, he tells everybody that my daughter has just died and these men had to have known his daughter. And then they watch Jesus, this guy that claims to be the Messiah, take off after him. But isn't it interesting we have very suddenly another interruption. Notice what happens here in verse 20. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I shall get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. Folks, here's what's going on. He's following Jairus now. And on the way, this woman comes up behind him and seeks healing. Friends, here we have another opportunity to celebrate the the grace of God in Christ. Think about this. Notice that Jesus here is, is not partial just to the elite synagogue official who represented the elite of society. But he also stopped to tend to a woman who was an outcast. Now, let me explain. Hemorrhages in those days were quite common. It was probably caused by a tumor or a disease of the uterus. And according to Old Testament law, these women were ceremonially unclean. In fact, even for a woman's menstrual cycle, they would be considered temporarily unclean during that period of time. And seven days after the bleeding had stopped, she would be considered clean once again. And she could often offer certain sacrifices. But, folks, this is this is far worse than that because this was continual bleeding. I mean, this put this woman in the category, frankly, of a leper. In fact, in Leviticus 15, we read that with this type of a problem, no one could touch her because she was unclean. Her family could not hug her. She could not touch them or they would be considered unclean, at least for a period of time. Her bed, the text says that she would lie upon, would be unclean. Wherever she sit would be unclean. You couldn't touch any of that. Or if you did, you would have you would be required to wash your clothes, uh, take a bath and you would remain unclean until the evening. So basically, friends, think of this. This dear lady never had an opportunity to worship with the people. She lived in utter isolation, no contact with family or friends. She lived in a perpetual state of uncleanliness. And therefore, many of her family, I'm sure, and certainly the Jewish community would consider that, oh, boy, this woman's got some serious sin in her life. and She was weak and sickly for 12 years. Imagine that. By the way, Mark's gospel in verse 26 of chapter 5 adds that she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. Yet we see great faith here, do we not? She comes up behind Jesus and verse 21 indicates that she kept saying over and over to herself. If you see the grammar of the original language, she was saying over and over and over to herself. If I only touch his garment, I shall get well. So she finally makes it and and she touches the Lord's robe and Jesus turns and sees her and says, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Beloved, here again, a celebration of grace. What a celebration of grace must have occurred in her heart. Because now she comes to Jesus with anguish of soul. She She is physically and she is spiritually desperate. And in faith believing, she comes to him and suddenly she is physically and yes, spiritually healed. As you will see in a moment. In fact, Mark 5.29 says that immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now, can I take you back to the big picture? I hope you're staying with me here. I know this is a bit complicated, but I have to laugh. Don't you know that the look of the faces of those people, especially the scribes and the Pharisees and maybe even Jairus, I, I, I'm sure that many of those guys look like they were having a gallbladder attack. Because now all of a sudden... Not only are they watching Jesus follow off after Jairus, but they see this unclean woman and they had to have known her. And she comes up and she touches his garment and now guess what he is. Now he's unclean. And yet he says something to her. He says, basically, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Now, this certainly must have strengthened the faith of Jairus. As he stopped and turned and saw what happened. And I believe that he had to have known who she was. Let me tell you why I believe that. He had probably even prescribed for her some of the remedies that she had used for healing all to no avail. And if he hadn't, at least he knew some of the some of his colleagues that did. Here's why I say that according to the Jewish Talmud, they had come up with 11 different cures for such an ailment. Now, as you're going to see, these were superstitious remedies, but this is what the people would do. One of the things that that Jairus or perhaps the other men would have prescribed to this woman that they knew is that according to the Talmud, you would you could uh, carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a cotton bag in the winter or you would put it in a linen bag in the summer. And that will be a remedy for your bleeding. Or another proven remedy that they had often prescribed would be carrying around a kernel of barley corn in your pocket. But friends, it couldn't be just any kernel of barley corn. No, according to the Talmud, it had to be one that had been found in the dung of a white female donkey. You begin to see the humor here in all of this. These guys are watching all of this and they can't heal this woman. They don't want anything to do with her. And suddenly she's healed. Another fascinating interruption. Again, think of the flow. First, you have the self-righteous Pharisees interrupted by the confused disciples of John the Baptist. And, and then Jairus comes along and, and then the woman comes along. Why all the interruptions? What, what do you think the Spirit of God is trying to communicate? Well, perhaps, first of all, to demonstrate to those hypocrites who love to condemn that there is a greater priority, and that is to teach sound doctrine and to evangelize those that are lost rather than to argue with divisive fools. You know, I have no time for pathological antagonists. They distract you from what's important. But I believe even beyond that, as he's teaching John's disciples He understands that there is even a greater priority at times, and that is to tend to the great spiritual and physical needs of someone that comes in desperation. And also, we see that the power of of impartiality. We should never show partiality to anyone in need, whether it's the socially elite or the outcast. But I also believe that this interruption was a bit of humor as the Lord demonstrated to those hypocrites that, you know what? I'm going to publicly heal this woman so that you can see that your remedies are silly. They're superstitious, but I'm even going to allow her to touch me. I want you to see that. And I'm going to continue on in what you perceive to be my uncleanness. And even in the state of what you perceive to be my uncleanness, I'm going to raise the dead. Just watch. But dear friends, there is yet another great jewel of divine truth that I believe is tucked away in the God-breathed words here that the Holy Spirit has uttered. Stick with me. This is real important. It's technical, but I found it to be such a a ministry to my heart. Because remember now, this second point is simply we celebrate grace because Jesus saves sinners. Now catch this. In all three gospel accounts where the word well is used, like in verse 21, if I can only touch his garment, I shall get well. Also in verse 22, Mark five thirty-four, Luke four forty-eight. In all three accounts, the normal Greek terms that would be used to describe physical healing, iaomai and therapeuo, where you get therapeutic from that, those normal terms are not used. And many times in Bible interpretation, you have to ask, why didn't God use what normally would be used? But instead, he used the term sozo and folks, that is the New Testament term for being saved from sin. It has the idea of a total restoration that goes beyond a mere physical healing. So literally, the woman was saying in verse 21, if I only touch his garment, I shall be saved from my sin. I shall be totally restored body and soul. And in verse 22, when the Lord says, daughter, take courage, your faith has saved you from your sin. You see, the same term was used when Jesus said to the prostitute, remember that story? The one who washed his feet with her with 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 her tears and and wiped them with her hair. He said to her the same thing. Your faith has saved you. Likewise, Jesus restored sight to the blind beggar Bartimaeus. Remember in Mark 10? And he said, go your way. Your faith has made you well or literally it has saved you from your sins. And likewise, the story of the ten lepers in in Luke 17. Remember, the text there says that all ten were cleansed, but only one man, only one man returned to glorify God and to thank Jesus. And to that man, not the other nine, but to that man, Jesus said, your faith has made you well. The same term. It has saved you from your sins. Ten lepers were healed. One was saved. Beloved, here's the point. In the providence of God, this dear woman interrupted the Lord while he was on his way to the, to the house of Jairus. Not only to demonstrate to all of us the Lord's tender mercy and his loving impartiality. But I believe to demonstrate to this onlooking crowd that he, would, he was not only able to, to heal disease, but he could save people from their sin. He could cleanse them from all unrighteousness. A total restoration, a total cleansing, both body and soul. And don't you know, those people picked up on that word. How tragic it is to see people chase after Jesus for physical healing, yet have no comprehension of the greater need that they have, namely the forgiveness of sin. Well, both Jairus and this woman knew they needed a total restoration of body and soul. And oh, dear friends, don't you see it? Once again, we can celebrate here the grace of Jesus, not only because he fulfilled the law, because he saved sinners, but this incredible story is not over. And I'll quickly move to the end of it. Stick with me. It's a precious thought. There is yet another great, great reason to celebrate grace, and that is that Jesus conquered death. And for those of us who have spent time in those hospital rooms and in. Funerals, we know what a joy this is. Notice in verse 23, after he heals, the woman says, And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he began to say, Depart, for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been put out, he entered and took her by the hand. And the girl arose and this news went out into all the land. Friends. Here's what was going on. According to Jewish Jewish funeral customs, whenever there was a funeral, it, it was absolute bedlam. It was chaos. They would hire professional flute players to play dissonant sounds very loudly to illustrate the emotional turmoil and the racial, relational discord that was now a part of their grief. And they would also hire women who were professional mourners. And they would come in and they would weep and wail at the top of their lungs and and they would scream out various phrases of bitter lamentations of grief and they would use the name of the deceased and they would also cry out the names of other family members that had departed to really cause you to feel about as low as you possibly could about the whole situation. Of course, it was phony, but it sounded good. And this is what Jesus encountered. In fact, according to Jewish tradition, there were thirty nine ways for family members to tear their robes. Things like, well, you you know, you've got to be standing up when you do it. And if you're the mother or the father, you have to tear the robe over the heart. But if you're just a family member or someone else, you have to tear the robe somewhere else. And if you're a woman and, and you tear the robe over the heart as the mother, if you want to, you can tear your undergarment and wear it backwards. And the hole has to be big enough to put your fist through. And they had all this silly stuff. Well, this is what Jesus comes into this emotionally charged meeting. I would say that whenever I've been around any emotionally charged meeting, especially when it's a so-called worship service, it's as phony as a three dollar bill. And that's what we've got going on here. Jesus comes in and says, depart for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And of course, what happens? Well, the mourners mock him. This is the typical reaction of unbelievers when they hear the word of the Lord. But it says when the crowd had been put out. He enters in, by the way, Mark adds that he allows Peter, James and John and the girl's parents to go in with him. And the text says that he he takes her by the hand and, and, and Mark's account says that he says, Talitha come, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And the girl rose. Friends, can you imagine the scene Her creator, God, takes her lifeless hand and supernaturally infuses life into those trillions of cells within that body. And suddenly she comes to life. Beloved, here is the absolute pinnacle of divine accomplishment in Jesus' ministry prior to the resurrection resurrection from the grave. Here we have a glorious picture of the power of Jesus Christ over death itself. Again, what an astounding validation that he was indeed the Messiah. And I want to close with this personal challenge to each of you. Some of you might say, well, my pastor, this is a great story, but how can I apply it to my life? Very simple. Beloved, be courageous as a Christian. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Don't be discouraged serve your savior who has fulfilled the law who has saved you from your sin who has conquered death what do you have to be afraid of and i close with the way paul puts it in second timothy chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 he says this do not be ashamed of the testimony of our lord and he goes on to say but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of god who saved us And called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now catch this, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What wonderful truths. And what a wonderful Savior we serve. Let's serve Him courageously and long to see Him face to face. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank You for the clarity and the power of Your Word. Speak to our hearts and change our lives accordingly that we might enjoy all that You have promised us in Christ Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.